It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Vinyl records are a pleasure to the ear. Can they also be a valuable asset? The hidden dangers of time-worn investment cliches and why millennials are more susceptible than most to the lure of online gambling. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. For those of us of a certain age, the look, feel and sound of vinyl records evoke feelings of undeniable nostalgia. If you've managed to cling on to your record collection through the era of CDs, MP3s and streaming music, you've proved your loyalty to the format. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself what it might be worth? This week I emerged from the FT Audio studio to go and meet Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, the FT's pop critic, who has been doing just that and has written about the experience for FT Money. Well, that's a wonderful sound. Uh, Thank you very much, Ludovic Hunter-Tilney. And I'm here with him in his uh, sitting room in London, in Queen's Park, and we are surrounded by records. Um, Ludo, that was, I think we all know who, know who that was, but can you tell us a bit about it? Well, absolutely, James. This, uh, of course, was a Tomorrow Never Knows, the classic track on the side, last song on side B of Revolver, the Beatles' 1966 um, album, the sort of transitional album where they began to become the sort of psychedelic out there explorers of their latter part of their career. Um, now this album, which I have in the mono recording, um, it, this is in the mono recording. If I had had the first pressing in which Tomorrow Never Knows uh, was actually a shorter version was, was run on there, this oh, yes. record would be worth about £400. Wow, wow, it's extraordinary. So um, uh, you have any idea what it's worth now? Well, actually, I'm unfortunately, this record I've inherited from my parents-in-law, who are ah, the ones who had the okay. foresight to buy it. They didn't quite have the foresight to buy the very first pressing, but they did buy the second pressing of the mono, which is worth less. Um, this copy that I have is still going to be worth about uh, £60 or so. Um, very good. It's in decent enough condition. and um, Well, great. I mean, t- tell us a little bit. You've been spending a few weeks um, looking at your extensive record collection acquired over sort of 30 years as, as, a, as a pop critic. Um, what have you learnt about the experience of doing that and the, and the, and the rules and the, the things one should, one should look out for? I've learnt that re- my records are basically worth more than I thought they would be, that there has been an appreciation in value during the uh, 2010s 
which has been really quite dramatic. So for a long time, my record collection, which is composed essentially of inherited records from my parents and my parents-in-law, a smattering of uh, records that belong to my wife, which I've now sort of taken over, um, I were incorporated into my own, and then a lot of my own records, which were bought in the 80s and 90s principally, with a few from the 2000s. Um, I've discovered that uh, the value of those has remained pretty constant, but then has gone up very steeply in the last sort of uh, eight years or so. So how do you go about valuing uh, your, your collection? Well, James, there's an online site for doing so. There are several online sites, but the one I used is an online marketplace called Discogs. Um, and that has a tool whereby people can go and calculate the uh, value of the records they have based upon what people on that site have paid for in the past. You key in your catalogue number, you try to work out which issue it is. It's a very arduous process because records come out in numerous uh, issues. And there are obviously also counterfeit copies, of which I discovered one among my ah, collection. Um, yes, which I suppose I should really snap and throw away. <laughs> um, and then having done that, I went off to a record shop, a second-hand record shop called Flashback Records on Essex Road. And I spoke to its owner, Mark Burgess, uh, in order to go and have the um, values that I had uh, discovered uh, to have them verified by an expert. Mm -hmm. And and so what sorts of things does did, did he uh, reveal to you things that you that you found surprising, things that you weren't expecting to see? He revealed to me that I mean, I knew that rare records were worth money rarities um what i didn't quite gather was the extent to which uh how many rarities there are i suppose yes. uh, oddly enough and it's to do with little things just like the tomorrow never knows track being shorter on the first pressing it's to do with small typographical mistakes mm -hmm. that uh, turn up on labels it's to do with um the bob dylan blonde on blonde album that i have uh, which is a gatefold album uh, mm -hmm. that's another parent-in-law uh, bequest um uh, and, it, and you, you believe I believe you've got one record which is um, which shows the value of a particular era. Yes. So my records that I bought in the nineties, mid nineties especially, was a very good time in order to be um, in order to be buying records. So I'm just going to put on a record from a classic from that era, which is Pulp's album Different Class, which was released in 1995 at the height of the Britpop boom. And let me put this on. So there we are, we oh, have yes. Jarvis Cocker in his pomp, <laughs> in that wonderful song of singing about the freaks and the outcasts of the world. Um, wonderful album. Anyway, I was, I was surprised to discover that that album in mint uh, condition, or near mint, would be about £80. That's, that's uh, quite surprising. And is that because that was the period when vinyl was no longer being produced? That's right. So at that that's point, vinyl began to be vinyl. Vinyl began sort of uh, uh, vinyl began to lose its dominance in the eighties. Cassettes actually took over. By the end of the eighties, cassettes were outselling vinyl in terms of albums, but the CD was its sort of near death knell. And from about sort of the mid nineties onwards, there were fewer vinyl records being pressed up and many more CDs. So to give an example, if I had bought my copy of Nirvana's Nevermind, which came out in 93 on CD, it might be worth about two pounds now, possibly, mm -hmm. but I have the vinyl copy, which again is well played and is worth about 50 pounds. Um, in this case, we have this album, which originally came out with a whole number of 12 different inserts. So a special edition again, mm -hmm. I don't have that special edition. If you did have it, it would be worth about £200. Nonetheless, my copy, which has been played a great deal, is in sort of 
good condition, possibly very good according to the way they go and grade vinyl quality, is worth about £45. Just before we wrap up, could you tell me about new music, new vinyl? Is it worth buying these things uh, for the same reasons you've described, you know, buying the previous vinyl? So new vinyl um, is currently, we are seeing the, uh, um, a boom in new vinyl. That There were over 4 million vinyl albums sold last year in the UK, which was the most since the early 90s. Mm. Um, uh, at the moment, new vinyl comes out. I mean, it's sort of, although it seems expensive, they're about £20 an album, I suppose. In fact, they've kept more or less in pace with, with inflation at the £5.50 that my wife paid for her copy of Prince's Love Sexy in, in uh, 1988 would now be roughly 16 or £17. And so, actually, actually, they're not so much. Now, I've got a copy here of Radiohead's uh, most recent album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Um, and... Uh, this album I have played only once because I also have the digital version. Um, as soon as I played it, so I'm going to put this album on Radiohead's A Moon Shaped Pool. Yeah. New copy. I'm going to get an open with the very first song, the um, excellent Burn the Witch. Wonderful song, and the quality is absolutely excellent. It's nice, thick vinyl. Um, they tend to sell them in uh, 180 gram discs at the moment, although there's a problem with sourcing enough vinyl. At any rate, handsome things. Um, by playing that album, I've sort of reduced its value by some 20% or so. Just by opening it up. Just by opening it up and playing it, um, even though the copy I have is in near mint condition because I haven't played it very often. So I've reduced its value simply by playing it uh, by about 20%. However, it will probably keep that value, that, that reduced value, over time. Um, it's unlikely to grow hugely because lots of other uh, of these have now been produced. There are other issues which are coming out at the moment. In terms of collecting new vinyl, the thing to look out for are the limited editions mm. which, um, which come out, and uh, such as those on Record Store Day, um, which is um, set up in order to help independent record stores, um, which is the April 21st, this weekend. Um, and they tend to stock all sorts of rarities and limited editions. If you buy those, then you could see their value or you're liable to see their value appreciate over time. Ludovic Hansen-Tilney, thank you very much indeed. You can read more about how to value your record collection or indeed your entire music collection uh, in his uh, cover feature for FT Money this weekend. Most personal investors don't spend a great deal of time analysing the outlook of the companies they're invested in, at least not to the extent that a professional fund manager might. Yet they do decide the kinds of things they're going to invest in, and they think about when to put their money down and when to take it out. Miles Johnson, Capital Markets Editor, has been thinking about what guides people when they make those decisions, and he's come to some rather unsettling conclusions. Miles, thanks for joining us. How does the average individual investor operate when they're making decisions about their investments? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, literature existing which um, shows that the average investor actually tends to underperform the market, mainly due to what we could label sort of behavioural issues, where um, people frequently sort of, to put it simply, will buy high and sell low or get worried, you know, when the market sort of moves around a lot and make decisions that are sort of contrary to their interests. 
Mm. Now, you've written this week about uh, investment cli- investment cliches for us. Can you give us some examples of the kind of thing you're talking about there? Well, I um, what I intended with the article is basically to discuss um, kind of popular investment wisdom, which I um, you know have referred to as sort of cliches, um, to, um, which I think is correct to some extent. Um, where these are wise concepts, um, but at the same time, if they're sort of only applied in a sort of uh, half-hearted manner or in an incorrect way, they can actually result in adverse results for the investor. So these are often ideas that are extremely important to investing, but can become dangerous weapons if they are applied in the wrong way. And so, you know, one of those would be, for example, um, you know, the classic would be you have to be a long term investor or a buy and hold investor. And that's advice which I think is very good. I think actually uh, the main problem that um, individual investors often have is that they are unable to sit and do nothing. It's very hard to just leave your investments and not mess around with them, get worried due to some kind of you know, piece of news, try and time the market, incur costs. These are all things which have detrimental effects on people. But that said, people need to understand why being a long-term investor is a good thing, not just being a long-term investor for the sake of it. And so an example that um, I gave is obviously the idea that, you know, people people believe sometimes that just being a long-term investor can on its own save a bad investment and that the key thing to being a long-term investor is that you invest in good things which you know appreciate in value over time that compound their intrinsic value over time if you invest in bad things if you hold them for a long period of time it's not going to do you any good if you invest in you know the example i give sort of um you know is magic beans or some completely valueless nonsense you know if you hold it for 50 years it's still going to be valueless nonsense in 50 years the fact that you've held it for 50 years makes absolutely no difference whatsoever so I'd have thought that one of the ways of guarding against falling into these traps is by diversifying, because that ensures a certain amount of damage limitation. Or is that in itself a, an investment cliche? Well, I think that's arguably even the the, the bigger kind of piece of perceived, um, you know, in, uh, popular investment wisdom, even more than being a long term investor, is the idea, you know, do not put all your eggs in one basket. Diversification is a, a means of protecting your wealth. I think, again, that's broadly correct i think that um uh you know no one is um going to do too badly in life by be- by following that mantra but that said you can also make mistakes people can basically again diversify into bad investments there's you know a kind of ex- most recent example would be um so-called alt coins or you know different um alternative coins to uh bitcoin so mm. they were labeled alt coins and there was a mad speculative rush at the end of last year where the prices of these magic coins were going up sort of in, to insane levels and um you know there were things like promising you know there was one coin which was premise- promising to disrupt the global dentistry industry and you know uh, there's actually one at the moment which i thought was the best i've ever seen which is um one um uh, where it's trying to raise money in a so-called initial coin offering to try and uh discover a lost galleon full of gold off the florida coast wonderful um and so if you diversify into a bunch of these coins you may hold 20 of them that doesn't mean that you're probably not going to lose all of your money which quite (laughs) a lot of people already have yes so is the conclusion that we should pay others to do our thinking for us i think 
broadly speaking, um, well, you know, that gets us into a different debate. I mean, you know, that's there are long standing debates of the merits of active management versus so-called passive management and fees and these things. And I think that broadly speaking, um, all of these, um, you know, being diversified, being a long term investor, um, you know, not paying too, uh, losing too much to fees. These are all extremely important points, not trying to time the market, spending time in the market, allowing your wealth to compound. These are all things that are important. But that said, people, whether they do it through, um, you know, a someone else managing their money or someone else managing their money may well be making the same mistake. It's basically people, it's not practical for the vast majority of people to spend a large amount of time doing the research and spending the effort needed to kind of run their own investment. But, um, you know, people should just be careful. They should always just use it as a sanity check to make sure that they're not making horrific blunders and excusing those blunders with a sort of uh, butchered version of um, popular investment wisdom saying oh I own this ludicrous coin but I'm a long term holder so it's all going to be okay in the end, it's not going to be all okay in the end <laughs> Thanks very much there to Miles Johnson FT Capital Markets Editor You can read more from him about the perils of investment cliches in this weekend's FT Money. We move seamlessly from dangerous investment ideas to outright gambles Kate Beerley, a writer for FT Money, has noticed a growing number of her millennial friends getting into online gambling, putting money on horses, football matches, political events, all sorts of things, usually through apps that they can easily access on their mobile phones. Kate, it sounds here like several trends have converged to boost gambling among this age group. What's happening? Yeah, well, I think um, one of the key ones is it has become far easier to gamble on your phone. I mean, this is clearly an age group already obsessed with our mobile phones, and that makes it easier to gamble more frequently and gamble more. At the same time, betting companies have grown even more kind of sophisticated at marketing special offers to gamers and pushing free bets to you, which often pop up as notifications on your phone. And then there are also more and more things to gamble on now. So you can gamble on increasingly arcane things, not just a case of betting win or lose in a football match. It's kind of esoteric things within football matches or any number of things to do with Donald Trump. And this is disproportionately affecting young people. Millennials were responsible for the largest increase in online gambling of any age group last year. They're more likely than any other to have gambled at least once in the previous four weeks when the lottery stripped out. And they're more likely to bet regularly on esports and online casino games than any mm. other age group now. So, but some people might say, "Come on, this is just uh, this is just harmless, occasional flutter, um, a bit of fun." Um, what sort of sums are we talking about? Is it something more substantial than that? Well, according to charity Gamble Aware, gamble, gamblers who are not at risk um, bet an average fourteen pounds a day, and they're betting between two hmm. and seven times a day. So, not insignificant. They say the problem gamblers spend an average ninety eight pounds a day. Uh, but even if people aren't spending much every time, I think frequency is an issue here. People are betting more and more frequently. So even if the amounts are small, you know, they soon add up. Yeah. Um, and of course, millennials are the age group that are most likely to want to be saving. So I guess this sort of expenditure isn't going to help. Yeah, well, quite. I mean, it's it's quite easy, I think, to think saving is a bit hopeless um, for some young people. I mean, without help, saving up for a house deposit can feel like a really, you know, long way off. Um, and all the kind of negative headlines about pensions uh, are also pretty scary for young people. So I think there is sometimes a tendency to feel like, oh, you know, what's the point? 
Um, apparently, one third of millennials will never own their own home, according to the Resolution Foundation. But at the same time, this kind of unconscious, kind of consistent spending is obviously not doing anyone any favours, really. And it, one presumes it's very easy to sign up to these online gaming sites or apps. Yeah, it is very, very easy to sign up. And m- most people who are kind of into gambling or gaming uh, will have more than one account. So you can end up with, uh, you know, several of these apps on your phone. Um, obviously, you can put limits on your spending. The companies let you do that, but you could also easily remove those. If you think you've got a problem, is there any help you can get either on the app itself or, or elsewhere? Yeah, well, I think the main place to get help um, are places like Gamcare, which is a national helpline, um, the Be Gamble Aware website, and there are um, a ton of organisations listed on the Gambling Commission's website, which I think would be the first port of call. Thank you very much there to Kate Bearley. You can read more of Kate's thoughts on the mobile gambling trend in her Millennial Money column this weekend. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, do get in touch. Email us money at ft.com, tweet us at, at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.